Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics. And so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. She suddenly stood up. Harry, come here. I want to show you something. He followed her down a carpeted hallway and into a bedroom. There was a four-poster bed with blue-like coverings, an oak bureau, and matching bedside tables. Catherine Register pointed to the bureau. There were several photos and ornate stand-up frames on top. Most of them were Catherine and a man who seemed much older than she was in the photos. Her husband, Bosch guessed. But she pointed to one that was to the right side of the grouping. The photo was old, its color faded. It was a picture of two young women and a tiny boy of three or four. I've always had that there, Harry. Even when my husband was alive, he knew my past. I told him. (laughs) It didn't matter. We had 23 great years together. You see, the past is what you make of it. You can use it to hurt yourself or others, or you can use it to make yourself strong. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast. I'm Philip Parker, a retired detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content where you'll find more detailed experience concerning Michael Conley and Harry Bosch. Now all that bullshit's out the way, it's time to get to work and probe into chapters 5 through 8 of The Last Coyote. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explored how it's worth remembering that in times of great gain, in terms of wisdom and inner strength, it's often that of greatest difficulty, shaped chapters one through four of The Last Coyote. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters five through eight. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line Podcast, Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Upon returning to his home, 
Bosch opens up the murder book concerning his mother, Marjorie Phillips Lowe. Bosch begins the review of various police reports to include Lowe's prior arrests concerning prostitution. During this review, Bosch makes note that the reports had a number of grammatical errors that led Bosch to believe that the investigators didn't put much effort into the homicide investigation. As Bosch reviews the summary of the autopsy report, he came across a couple of surprises. The time of death was placed seven to nine hours before the discovery of the body, which was near midnight. Another surprise was the official cause of death. It was listed as a blunt force trauma to the head. The report described a deep contusion over the right ear with swelling but no laceration that caused the fatal bleeding in the brain. The report said the killer might have believed that he strangled the victim after knocking her unconscious, but it was the coroner's conclusion that she was already dead when the killer wrapped Marjorie Lowe's own belt around her neck and tied it off. The report further stated that while semen was recovered from her vagina, there was no other injuries commonly associated with rape. Rereading the summary with an investigator's eyes, Bosch could see that the autopsy conclusions only muddied the waters for the original two detectives. The initial assumption based on the appearance of Marjorie Lowe was that she was a victim of a sex crime. Bosch also noted that a prominent district attorney, Arno Conklin, inquired about the investigation, which seems curious. As Bosch reviewed the murder book, he observed that it was filled with filler reports. Bosch noted that the initial suspect was Lowe's pimp, John Fox. It appeared that the investigative team placed Fox under surveillance, but later cleared him as a suspect. Having acquired her name from the murder book, Bosch visited Meredith Roman. Roman was Lowe's best friend. Roman tells Bosch that she received a threatening phone call to keep her mouth shut concerning Lowe's death. Roman also told Bosch that the night Lowe was killed, that she was going to attend a party hosted by Arnold Conklin. After leaving Romans, Bosch utilizes Lieutenant Pound's ID and called DMV to check for a home address for Johnny Fox. Bosch then called Jerry Edgar and requested assistance locating Johnny Fox. Edgar hesitates, which angered Bosch. In an attempt to avoid traffic, Bosch proceeds to a local bar and takes in the quartet playing, do nothing till you hear from me. The group moved into It's a Wonderful World. The song made Bosch feel lonely and sad, but it was okay. Loneliness had been the trash can fire he huddled around for most of his life. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. What the defining theme for chapters 5 through 8 is, we are products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners to it. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast. Harry Bosch. And today we start this episode off with, 
you know, I had said it in prior podcasts, but I, it's worth repeating that, you know, we start Harry, we start this episode, or these chapters off, excuse me, with Harry, you know, had picking up the murder book, taking it home, clearing off a space on his table, and re reading the murder book. And like I'd said before, that's what we used to do. And I, I actually found it better to do that when I was able to take my investigative file folder home and work from home. But like I said before, uh, the, the, uh, the department stopped us from doing that. And the only thing that really did, I mean, I, I understand why somewhat, but the only thing that did was made detectives now start billing the city for work. I mean, a lot of times you're either on the phone, you're talking to coworkers, or there's something going on in office, and it's really difficult to focus in on little nuances of your investigation. So if you were able to take it home and kind of be quiet in your a, a space that you have set aside, I know for me, I got a lot of work done, a lot of my best work done when I was by myself in my office at home doing some work. So that's one of the things that just keeps coming up and, again, goes back to how authentic Michael Conley is when it comes to his description of investigators and how we solve crimes. And, you know, we see Michael Conley had teased us a little bit that Harry had taken the murder book out five years prior. But as he said here in this chapter, that he wasn't prepared to review it and, and the contents contained within. And, you know, again, listeners, Michael Conley is spot on. You know, I've looked at some police reports that I swear was from the 1800s when the department was first uh, first formed. And they really don't change too much, but a little bit of nuance here or there. And again, it's funny to see that because I could go back and find some old police reports. And over the generations, except for a little bit of tweaks here and there, the police reports are the same. And again, I point these little things out, and they might seem mundane to you, but I'm pointing them out because Again, it goes back to how authentic the character of Harry Bosch is and the world that um, Michael Conley has, uh, has developed. And, you know, what's important here is Michael Conley, you know, through Harry Bosch, makes a great observation that, you know, reports have changed and te- technology has changed to make law enforcement a little bit easier. But you know what? You still, interviewing is interviewing. Gut checks are gut checks. And you still got to get off your ass and knock on some doors and talk to people. And no matter, you know, from now in the 2000s to whenever, that portion of investigations would never change. And, you know, as Harry is reviewing the murder book, he comes across some investigative uh, summaries where the two um, detectives have reached out to vice guys. And just like I said in other podcasts, homicide and Vice investigations had this symbiotic relationship. And as I said before, I work a lot of homicide cases as like a liaison with homicide when it comes to vice work. Because a lot of times, as we're seeing in, I think this is now the third book, we had Harry reaching out to somebody in a vice type scenario to kind of get more information on his homicide and and attempt to help him solve the homicides. I want to bring something up here, you know, because I was, 
as I'm reviewing this portion of the book, Harry's reviewing discovering a Marjorie Lowe. And in, while he was discovering Marjorie Lowe, as we found out last book, that it was Chief Irving who uh, found the body. But I, I take you back to something that we found out about Chief Irving in the Black Echo. From the Black Echo, please don't use abbreviation. I'm a slow-moving, careful policeman. I don't like shortcuts. I don't like abbreviations. <laughs> but, you know, reading his report of finding Marjorie Lowe, Chief Irving stated the RO, which stands for the reporting officer. So he didn't say reporting officer. He said the RO. Now, again, you say, damn, Phil, you know, you know that's really nitpicking. You know, he's just a young rookie. And I'm always interested in a lot of backstories. What changed Irving? What happened to Irving to go from a guy like most officers use abbreviations to this, as he said, very slow-moving, careful policeman who don't like shortcuts. Now, I'm really pointing this out because, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I'm talking to any police officer who's listening to us, listening to this podcast. As you go up through the ranks, now, again, just to give you some backstory with me, I specifically chose to be an investigator. Uh, I had opportunities to go up to be more administrative. You know, you take two treks in law enforcement, the investigator route or the administrator route. And again, both, you need both. But I remember a story because this one guy, when we were in the academy, he, you know, him and I went to this one district. Now, the district I went to was a very rough district. And so we get out on the street, and I remember this guy uh, at one time, something happened, and you hear him screaming over the radio, Officer, need your sisters, back up, need your sisters, back up, please, back up, back up. And so we respond, what we call license sirens to the area. And it really wasn't that dramatic why he needed to call um, for that type of backup, him screaming over the radio. But I bring the story to, you know, to bring the story to a head is he then claimed that he was, um, uh, I wouldn't call it stress, but they put him on desk duty in the station. And then he went on desk duty in the station and he studied. And then he got promoted to sergeant, lieutenant, and captain. And so then, you know, I saw him later on, and he was in charge of a, um, a special operation. And I'm sitting in the back, and when you see this guy, he walks into the room. He's kind of like, not so bad as Chief Irving, but damn near close. His chest out, and he's, you know, walking with his chest out, and he's talking to people. Yeah, when I was in the street, I did this. When I was in the street, I did that. And then I peeked my head around and looked at like, and he saw me, and he just shrunk. Because him and I both know he was a coward back in the district. And now he's up front, you know, puffing his chest out like he's the man. And I, again, I, I bring the story to a head because I wonder what changed Irving growing up through the ranks. Because I hope, and I know you have to change to a certain degree, but I hope as you go up the ranks that you don't, that your core doesn't change. Of course, your, your vision becomes wider, but your core still should stay the same. And I bring this to, uh, I bring this up because here we see Irving, which is a regular footman, using abbreviations. And Michael made it a point that Irving hated people using abbreviations. 
He jumped on Lewis and Clark, asked for, you know, not using like the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He talked to his attache. Um, I'm a slow moving, careful policeman. But back in the day, he was just a regular cop. And I wonder what happened to him and how can he kind of live with himself for, you know, putting on this air about being this great police officer, this great cop? I don't know. I digress. And listeners, one of the things that Michael Connolly did is he released, quote unquote, the lost chapters concerning the uh, last coyote. And if you haven't done it, you need to read it because one of the things that I just thought was gut-wrenching to me is in that lost chapter, quote-unquote lost chapters, we see that Marjorie Lowe makes a show of a belt that Harry gave her, and now it's the same belt that was tied off around her neck during her, uh, during her murder. And again, you got to really feel sorry for Harry here because he's reading the um, summary or the autopsy report going through the the property that was left over and it was found during the murder. And that belt that he gave his mother was used or possibly used in her, in her murder. Wow. I mean, Michael Conley is really not pulling any punches here, is he? Because to me, that, that's just gut-wrenching to me. You know, to um, possibly the gift that I gave my mom was a tool that caused her murder. Or it was a tool that was utilized in her murder. Woo. Michael is not pulling any punches at all. This book is the defining book to me of who Harry Bosch is and what makes him Harry Bosch. Again, I'm a backstory person. And now we see one where everybody counts or nobody count comes from. And we see his um, volatility and his compassion towards uh, street prostitution. I mean, again, Michael Connolly's roping in the last two books. We have Money Chandler pretty much asking Harry, did he kill Norman Church because Norman Church represented someone who possibly killed his mother? And even Harry admitted back in that book that he never thought about that before. So this book to me is the quintessential. If you want to know Harry Bosch, you have to read this book. And one of the things that Michael Connolly gets right, and I tell all young investigators, because I learned the hard way myself, is you got to maintain a good chronological uh, sheet, a chronological report. And because the chronological report, you're able to, you know, Harry now is going back 20 some odd years, and he's now going through the investigative steps that the prior two um, investigators had. And you have to have a great, cohesive chronological report when it comes to your investigation. Because again, you might read it tomorrow, a week from now, two years from now. And if you keep a good, concise chronological report, you feel more assured to cover all the bases when it comes to solving your crime. And though we see Bosch can pick up that some things aren't right with this investigation. You know, we can see, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, Johnny Fox was clear without any coherent surveillance report. Duh. I mean, oh, he was under surveillance, but then we later cleared him. Again, then how did you clear him? You know, what did he say was his alibi? You know, there was some clearing things that happened um, during that investigation that was a miss that's not contained in the chronological report, which then set off some red flags for Harry. You know, then 
we have Michael Conley has great insight into law, the law enforcement world because as Bosch makes notes, the, the, the actual case jacket, if you look at it, it's probably thick. And again, this is an old investigative trick. And Michael Conley, uh, excuse me, Harry Bosch, uh, points out the fact that the murder book was filled with filler reports. And filler reports are just that, reports that are, aren't, doesn't move the investigation further. And, but if you look at it, you say, like, wow, they, these investigators did a good job because look how thick the, the uh, binder is. But any investigator worth his mantle can look at that and say, wait a minute, that's just a bunch of filler reports. Why am I doing a report on, I went to a property and we reviewed the property? I mean, okay, duh. <laughs> you, <laughs> that's, a, that's a filler report. Of course you went to property. It's, that's that's self-evident because you're going to have the, the property log is going to show the date and time you went in there and you pulled it out and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the fact that it was filled with filler reports is, again, one of those little things that I'm like, boy, Michael Conley has had some good investigators giving him insight into the world of law enforcement, especially investigators. And one of the things that during the summary of uh, the conclusion of the investigation, again, uh, from the book, experience and instinct of this investigator leads to the conclusion that the victim met with foul play at the unknown location after voluntarily arriving and possibly removing some clothing. Huh? Based on what? And again, no one cares about your investigative experience and instinct as an investigator. People care about the facts. And the fact that McKittrick and or Eno put that in as a conclusion to, to close or suspend the investigation was bullshit. And that's a red neon light just flashing. Because at one time, you know, if you make it the homicide. Now, when I was the first, when I first became an investigator, I kind of much said, I kind of said the same thing when I was trying to clean up an investigation. I remember my detective sergeant coming in and said, Phil, no one gives a fuck about your experience, your opinion or your instinct. People care about the facts. Only report on the facts. And that's, you know, that stuck with me 27 years later. And, and here we have experienced homicide investigators who are putting in a report to justify closing a case based on your uh, experience and instinct. <laughs> you know, again, Harry sees these red flags are just something is not right about this investigation. You know, and as he's following up, going down a chronological report, Again, your step by step of what's going on, he sees that a prominent um, the, uh, district attorney is calling about a street prostitute, and then there's no follow up in the chronological report on okay what happened, why did this, why this prosecutor call about this case? That's the kind of stuff that should be contained in the crime report. And if you're so inclined, go back, go to my website. I actually make a crime uh, report or crime sheet because. I incorporated that in the website because it's very important to a criminal investigator. Again, all good criminal investigators keep immaculate cron sheets. Michael Conley does something here that is, again, I told you, Michael Conley, eh, you got to watch out for his writing because, like I said, it's like a snake. It coils around you. And remember back in the Black Ice when Bosch had, quote-unquote, broke into Kyle Moore's home looking for evidence. And he found a bag and the bag contained photos. And the photos 
were his his as in Cal Moore's way of reliving the past. You know, I had to touch and feel it. And Bosch had wondered, why doesn't he put these photos up on the wall? Now we see Bosch having the same correspondence box. And inside this correspondence box, he had letters and photos, just like Cal Moore. And just like Cal Moore, Bosch, you know, has this relationship with Sylvia. And we see that something had happened with Sylvia that, that now they are broken up. And as he said with Dr. Anoho, she found out who I was. Again, a direct inference to the black ice. Again, and when I read that, I'm like, oh, damn it, Michael Conley, boy, he, he's good. You know, and, and I like the fact, again, I'm a backstory guy. And the fact that Michael Conley keeps referring back to other books, you know, this, this series, this Harry Potter series, you just can't just jump in and, and pick up and keep on going because you're going to miss something. You know, little nuances like that, you're going to, you know, that, to me, that is what makes this whole series believable and so intriguing is those little connections to the past. And that brings us to the question of the day. And the question of the day comes from chapters 5 through 8 of The Last Coyote. And it reads as follows. As Bosch is reviewing the summer reports of interviews concerning the death of Marjorie Lowe, Bosch's mother, Harry makes notes of misspelling and grammatical errors contained within the reports. Question. If you were a juror reviewing these reports, would those errors matter? Yes. Lack of professionalism? Or no, as long as the information is correct. And as of this podcast, 56% of you says, yes, it would matter because it shows a lack of professionalism. And 44% of you say, no, it doesn't matter as long as the information is correct. Now, I'm going to tell you, for me, I would hope that it is no, as long as the information is correct. But I am paranoid. I'm one of those investigators that I think it looks like is a lack of professionalism. So I try my best. Now, what's interesting here is I remember when I was the first, when I, again, when I first got promoted, I had a thesaurus and a dictionary at my desk because we didn't have any spell checks. We didn't have the internet. And you had to meticulously go down and make sure that you have that much spelling um, errors. Because, like I said, it, sometimes it does we could make an impression on a juror. And or, you know, we've seen how um, Honey Chandler, you know, did a great example of attacking Harry. And if you misspelled or had some grammatical errors, believe me, a, a good defense attorney could possibly use that against you. Because you can think of it, you know, a good defense attorney could say, oh, well, you misspelled coyote. Did you, and did you misspell or did you make any errors that could be... Um, uh, disadvantage to my client you know you put down two did you mean three bullets were found or you know again it's far-fetched but you know again why as an investigator i'm paranoid i don't want to leave that to chance so but i do appreciate i mean i have some i think i have the best fans when it comes to this podcast and two of the fans just were were phenomenal and i and i, and I really appreciate you too 
And again, I, I'm not going to use your names because I haven't asked for permission. But if you go on to Facebook, when listening to the podcast, makes a great observation by saying, hey, you know, as a juror, your job is to examine the facts as long as the reporting's accurate. Grammatical and punctuations are irrelevant to the job, you know, which is excellent, which is perfect. And another person says, in her line of work, she couldn't help but notice the spelling of grammatical mistakes and automatically builds a judgment case in her mind. So if she was a juror, she would definitely be judgmental about it. And so that's almost a 50-50 split. And I point those two um, people out because I get that feedback all the time. But I like the feedback because both listeners are pretty much mirroring what the uh, poll said. It's almost a 50-50 split. So I feel like I'm rambling and I am going back to hitting the streets. Now, based on information he found during the review of the murder book, he comes across an interview with Meredith Roman. And Harry then remembers about a, a card, a birthday, excuse me, a Christmas card that quote-unquote Aunt Meredith, now I call it Aunt Meredith because again, the lost chapter concerning the um, last coyote, again, I'm going to tell you guys, you have to go read it because it's very important. It gives some great backstory on the little kid, Harry Bosch. And you know, one of the things that happened is Harry then goes to her home. And as Harry goes to her home, he knocks on the door and says, Meredith Roman? And she goes, that's not my name. <laughs> I just like that because you know, she's a street lady. And the fact that she was a street lady, she could turn it off and on any time. And I like that particular interaction between uh, Bosch and uh, Marriage Roman. And how did you guys feel about that line, quote unquote, from the book? You see, the past is what you make of it. You can use it to hurt yourself or others, or you can use it to make yourself strong. I'm strong, Harry. That, I love that passage. And again, Michael Connolly, where he comes up with this stuff, because that's so true. You know, you can beat yourself up over and over about the past, or you could then use the past as experience and then make yourself strong. And I just thought that was something really um, inspiring. And I like the fact how Michael Connolly brought that out. And you now, speaking of um, making you strong, one of the things that Meredith had here is what Bosch called a, um, Bosch called a whore's pride. And I have seen that pride. Like Bosch says here, you know, she could talk about the worst of her life without flinching. And she could talk about it because she had made it through. That is true. You know, I've seen some women who have been in the prostitution field. And they'll tell you, just like a recovering alcoholic, or they'll tell you, as a matter of fact, yes, I used to be a prostitute. And, you know, and you, know, you have to respect a, a person that could look at some of the things in their life that most people would shy away from or lie about and use it as a badge of, badge of honor. And I've seen that before when you deal with vice work, that quote-unquote horse pride. Now, one thing that Meredith also tells Bosch is that she got a call before she knew that Bosch's mom was dead, that she got a call telling her if she knew what was good for her, 
she should keep her mouth shut. And she was scared. And I like how she even kind of pushed back on Harry, like, don't look at me that way, when Harry kind of said, well, why didn't you tell somebody? And she said, I was scared. Don't look at me that way. You know, it's easy to say now, why did you come forward? But as she said here in this portion of the chapter, who am I? I'm just a prostitute. No one's going to believe me over these cops or whomever called me. And, you know, you kind of have to you know, empathize with her because she's absolutely right. You know, things were different back then. But, you know, I keep saying this over and over again. And it's come up here again because Bosch asked her, Meredith, who was she going to meet? Who was my mom going to meet? And she said, that's the right question. Those detectives never asked that. They only wanted to know whose party it was and where it was. Now, remember, I said this a number of times throughout this whole, all these podcasts. And as a good investigator, you got to ask probably the same question 20 different ways. Because a lot of witnesses, if you don't frame the question a specific way, they're going to say, well, you never asked me that. And again, this is probably the third book. And it's come up over and over again. And again, I like it because here again, Bosch is asking the right type of question, which solicits Meredith to give him the right answer. Because like she said, those other guys didn't care about uh, or didn't even ask me this type of question. And uh, so, and she tells them they were going to a party hosted by Arnold Conklin. And you're like, oh, wow. Now, Arnold Conklin called the two investigators, and they listed in the crime report, and now his mom is going to go to a party, or she was going to a party hosted by him that night. You know, we started to get this picture developing and an investigative lead that was not follow-up on. From the book, what about a couple of vice guys, Gilchrist and Steno? She hesitated before answering. Yes, I knew them. They were mean men. Would my mother have known them? Uh, in that way? She nodded. What do you mean that they were mean? In what way? They just, they just didn't care about us. If they wanted something, whether it was a little piece of information you might have picked up on a date or something more personal, they just came in and took it. They could be rough. I hated them. I understand what Meredith is saying here because I've seen cops not taking account of the personal plight of a particular prostitute or someone in uh, the vice world. And they took it personally. And if you just treat people, no matter what their station in life, you will be amazed how much information you would get from them. Like, again, I think I told you before, you know, um, getting out of your scout car and talking to people. And, and I know I'm being old fashioned here, but being personal, personable to people to include prostitutes. Because, again, I'll tell you, I, some good um, informers of mine were, ex were, were prostitutes at the time. And, you know, you, you know uh, Jack and I would go to them and ask them, hey, you know, this, this, and this. And they're like, yeah, 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 you know, you got to look out for this person. Or there's ways to get information without being mean. And if you're not mean, you will be amazed you get a reputation because one, again, we talk about prostitutes here. One prostitute would say, yeah, that Phil and Jackie, yeah, they're pretty straight shooters. 
And if something goes down, you need to let them know. Because it's true. But I've seen a lot of guys who look down and be mean to these uh, young ladies. And that only hindered their investigative techniques or their ways. You know, we live and die off information. Any cop would tell you that. Any criminal investigator would tell you that. You live and die off information. And they're out there every day. They're on the street. They know the streets. And if you treat people the way you want to be treated, again, their station of life, they're, they, they, they're doing this, they're selling their bodies. I wouldn't do it. But that's what they choose to do. But that doesn't mean that you have to treat them less than. And you will be amazed how much that goes over because, you know, we had, I can go to one of my informants and just say, hey, you know, we're looking for a guy who drives a blue Mercedes and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, that guy comes around at 10 o'clock every night and he's, you know, and his favorite girl is her, Sherry. You know, so, you know, Jackie and I can set up at 10 o'clock and, you know, night and boom, there the guy is. Like, God damn. You know, and there was ways to compensate informants um, for giving us information like that. So, again, I digress, but I understand what she mean by those guys were mean. And, again, I had a great partner, and we both subscribed to treating these young ladies, treating these ladies as people opposed to as objects. You know, we did see after Bosch leaves um, from interviewing Meredith, he calls DMV. He's trying to run down the location of Johnny Fox. <laughs> you know, now, just like Harry says here, the department was cracking down on cops running uh, plates and information for privatized and or attorneys or something like that. So now you have to provide an ID. Well, also what happened back then was, again, remember I told you, I've said it before, there's this, this fight between the big bad FBI and the state and locals. So in our department, <laughs> they had this, and we had this bank of computers. And, you know, just before we, the MDTs and all that kind of stuff, MDTs are mobile, um, mobile computers in your car. And if you wanted to run somebody, you had to go to the office and again, it was a bank of computers and you had to, you know, go in and they were open terminals. And what I mean by open terminals, you didn't have to have a password to log in. They were open. You would just search. And every once in a while, some people <laughs> would <laughs> look at the most wanted poster and put in the name. Let's say the guy, the mo- one of the most wanted was Charles, uh, Charles Bundy. <laughs> Charles, so you because the poster would say Charles Bundy, um, date of birth and everything. So since it was open terminal, you would type in the name Charles Bundy, boom, 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 type, 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 hit enter, and then leave out real quick. <laughs> what would happen now if you wanted to piss off the station clerk? Because remember those terminals, especially that national NCIC database, was monitored by the FBI. And they had flags. So if a patrol officer ran that particular person, someone would get a flag and just start calling the, uh, the, calling the destination where that terminal was listed to. So say it was listed to by a precinct, they would start calling. And the station clerk would be like, no one has Charles Bundy. Well, somebody just ran Charles Bundy. 
We don't know what you're talking about and hang the phone up. And then all of a sudden you would start seeing FBI cars showing up. <laughs> I mean, and then they would come in and say, who's running Charles Bundy? Like, okay, no one ran Charles, ran Charles Bundy. And this would be done like on a Sunday at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and you want to see a bunch of fans running around the corner real quick. Again, you know, I've seen it happen. I see it happen. Hands up. You know, I see it happen. And, you know, cops are sitting back there snickering. That just shows the childish things that were back that was happening back then. Those little pranks that were played on the on the feds. Now, you guys know I love Edgar. And Edgar disappointed me last book in The Concrete Blonde. Oh, he killed me because he decided to sell himself to uh, Honey Chandler. And Bosch forgave him. And so, to this point, just to refresh, is Bosch is on leave. Pound has told Edgar that Bosch is not coming back, and Edgar now has a new partner. So, again, in the effort to track down uh, Johnny Fox, Bosch calls Edgar and says, hey, could you run down this guy for me? And Edgar hesitates. And I can tell you right now, Edgar was wrong. And you don't hesitate with your partner. And I still have people who I have, you know, once you're my partner, you're always my partner. And what I, this is how I believe. You know, I still call guys who I haven't worked with in 15 years my partner because, you know, it's this trust that we built up. And, you know, you don't betray that trust until something happens. And what Harry's done for Edgar, for Edgar to hesitate, yeah. That's bad form on Edgar's part. And I'm kind of disappointed with Edgar here. And again, another great line that Michael Conley wrote in this, these chapters here from the book. The song made him feel lonely and sad, but that was okay. Loneliness had been the trash can fire he huddled around for most of his life. He would just get used to it again. It had been that way for him before Sylvia, and it could be that way again. It would just take time and the pain of letting her go. Like, God damn. I mean, just that metaphor. Loneliness had been the trash can fire he had huddled around for most of his life. Wow. I mean, Michael Collins just, I mean, did, does that line hit you guys? Because it sure enough hit me. It definitely hits me. As we end this chapter, Harry then, he leaves the bar and he's on his way home. And he sees a metaphor for this book, you know, this coyote, this blue coat, straggly, you know, a strawny little coyote going across the street. And I like picking up on, I picked up something here, is he saw the coyote in the dark, sacred night. You know, my, again, this book is 1995. And then Michael just, come, just came out with a book, The Sacred Night, The Dark, Sacred Night. Like, wow. And he's so great at weaving in the title of his books into different facets of the story. You know, first it was the Black Echo, then the Black Ice, the the, uh, Concrete Blonde, now the last Coyote. And then he reaches back damn near 20 years and picks up the Dark Sacred Night. You know, Michael Connelly is a beast.
And that gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person for chapters 5 through 8 of The Last Coyote is Aunt Meredith or Meredith Roman or Catherine Register or whatever her name is. But Aunt Meredith, one, I like her for, as Harry described in these chapters, that whore's pride. I kind of telegraphed this a little bit. But the fact of the matter that she is not running away from her past and she can still face it head up, look straight on with that courage and that conviction. I admire a person that could do that. And hopefully faced with such adversities, if I was uh, thrust into a situation like that, I could keep or have a pride of my own. So again, my everyone counts or no one counts person for this episode is Aunt Meredith. Concludes chapter five through a review of the last coyote. Woo, boy! Well, one, thank you so much for your patience and understanding. While I took a little time off to be with friends and family, and I will continue to say thank you so much for hanging in there with me. And please, please continue to go to Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there. Don't forget to rate us five stars or better. And as always, if you can, please leave a comment, good or bad, because your comments fuel me. And I use the metaphor of a knife. We're, uh, your comments and suggestions keep this podcast getting sharper. So continue to do that. And hey, guess what, guys? You've been here for a year with me. We have been doing this podcast for a year, like OMG. And you know, we've knocked out 27 podcasts in that year's time. And I, it doesn't feel like a year to me. It feels like I just started. So I am still enthusiastic. I still like doing this stuff. And thank you so much for being there with me as we continue to grow. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find more detailed experience concerning Michael Conley and Harry Bosch. So, next up on The Thin Blue Line, we will continue our deep dive into The Last Coyote, chapters 9 through 12. I'm Phil Parker, and I'm 10-7 for the remainder. <laughs>